0: Once again, my name is Steve Stegall. I'm one of the pastors and elders uh, at Eastside. I'm so delighted to be with you and sharing God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter six. Uh, We are in the middle of a sermon series we just started last week, a sermon series titled More Than a Story, where we look at some of the more famous biblical passages, stories that many of you are uh, wildly familiar with, and we're digging in a little bit deeper, hoping to see that there's more to the story than first meets the eye. Today we're going to be looking at uh, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. And there's so much to discuss here. I just want to give you uh, a disclaimer that there's four chapters that cover this story, and it would be impossible for me to preach to you verse by verse through four chapters. We would be here all night. So my, my hope is to cover one of the main themes that I think is most prevalent in this narrative. So we're going to dial in on one particular theme throughout this passage while I'm going to summarize by story much of the story of the ark and the flood and the things that you are probably most familiar with. Now whether you grew up in the church or not, my assumption is that many of you are familiar with this story. Uh, it's a beautiful story and uh, I would assume that if you were a child growing up, you heard it as a kid. You, those of you who are parents have probably taught this to your children You may have a a Jesus storybook Bible, or a big picture storybook Bible that depicts the story of Noah and the ark. Matter of fact, my son and I were talking about this this morning. As I was telling him what I was preaching about, I told him that I was gonna preach on Noah and the flood. And he said, well, dad, isn't it called Noah and the ark? And I think that's a great point. That illustrates how we have depicted this story in most of our uh, Jesus storybook Bibles, kids Bibles, the way we retell it. We think about Je- or, or Noah and the ark, the deliverance, the, the positive, the joy, the hope found there. But when you read in the Bible, this is the subtitle above this passage covers Noah and the flood. So it's a little bit different perspective there as we look today at Noah and the flood. The way we typically imagine this story is uh, happy and warm and fuzzy and cute and nice. Uh, that's how we retell it. But the reality is in the scriptures, this narrative it's much darker, much more troubling than we typically think of when Noah comes to mind. Though we usually think about the rainbows and the rhinos, there's much more to this story that we're going to look at today. So if you've got your Bible open to Genesis chapter 6, uh, like I mentioned before, I'm not going to read this entire narrative. It would be, uh, we'd be here all afternoon, but I'm just going to read a few verses here, then we're going to skip around a little bit just to talk about what the Lord might be doing here. Let's start in verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 7, and then uh, we'll talk about that for a few moments. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These specific verses help us gain an understanding of what prompted the Lord to flood the earth. God's word says that every intention of man's heart was wicked. Man's ways were evil. Man was egregiously sinful, and he had no remorse or repentance in his heart. Men were guilty of murder and theft and idolatry and sexual immorality and all sorts of sin that couldn't even be mentioned in church. The earth was a wicked mess, and there is unlikely a stronger passage in all of Scripture that depicts the depravity and the brokenness of man than what we see there in 6.5. The Lord also gives us insight into his own heart as he describes how he felt as he looked upon the tragic state of the earth. Verse 6 says it this way it says, The Lord was very sorry, excuse me, the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God was sorry that He created man. He was experiencing regret that He created man in the way that He did. Now, just a few chapters ago, as Pastor Adam preached on last week, we discovered and learned that as God created all that we know to be on the earth, it says that He was delighted with what He created. Genesis 1.31 says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Of course, as Pastor shared last week, it didn't take long for what God created to be very good to be corrupted by sinful man. Sadly, the image bearers of God who were uh, uh, com- compelled to go forth and multiply and, and proliferate throughout the earth, and indeed, they did multiply numerically, but they also multiplied in sin. God's creation fell very quickly. Thus far in the story, as we look at Genesis 6, it's been about 1,600 years since the garden. 1,600 years have passed, and though man has been very, very sinful, the Lord has been tremendously patient and gracious towards the sin of mankind. By the time we reach the story of Noah, much time has passed. Uh, Mankind has proliferated throughout the earth but man was as repulsive as ever. It was a sad state of affairs. The extreme corruption uh, upon the earth, upon God's most treasured creation, stirred up grief and sorrow in his heart. In verse seven, God articulates how he intended to respond. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, land, man, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. The sin of mankind pained the Lord so greatly that his sorrow compelled him to pour out his wrath upon the earth, pour out his judgment upon the earth to wipe it clean, to make it new. This part of the story is the one that often gets a sidebar. We talk about the warm, fuzzy, happy parts of Noah in the ark and the animals exiting the ark at the end of the story, but we very rarely consider what brought about the actions of the flood. God was preparing to bring forth his judgment upon man through the flood because of man's wickedness. That's what brought it about. The holiness of God prompted him uh, to pour out his disciplinary judgment upon the earth. The impetus for the flood was not the, uh, the whims of a flippant and capricious God, but it was the movement of a righteous and just God who poured out his just judgment on the earth in his perfect holiness, God must respond to sin. He must. And he cannot allow sin to go without consequence. God takes sin seriously, and the consequences for sin are very, very great. In the case of Genesis 6, life on earth was so abhorrent that the Lord sought to wash it clean. So the Lord committed to wiping the earth of its corruption But he found favor in one man, is what it said there, right at the very end, verse number eight. Let's read that together. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll continue on verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So the Lord found one man in whom he considered to be righteous among all the inhabitants of the earth. The way that Noah is described here in Genesis is uh, is very unique. As we look through the Old Testament, there's only two men throughout the entire Old Testament that get this sort of uh, acclamation. That'd be Moses and Noah. So those are the two men that we can look to that have such a strong affirmation from the Lord. And uh, the Lord found him to be righteous. And so he sought to shield him and protect him from his judgment. As God prepares to execute judgment on mankind, only the righteous will be able to escape his judgment. God lays out the plan for Noah, and so he gives them the, the master plan. I'm going to try to summarize a lot of this without reading through all these scriptures, but I just want to clarify with you that this is just a, a summary. So God gives uh, Noah this incredible assignment. You guys are familiar with the story. He asks him to build a gigantic ark. This is a gigantic boat, and he asks him to do it essentially by himself. Now, we know that he gives him the measurable measurements of the ark, but it doesn't show that he gives him a blueprint on how to do it. He asks him to build this ark. It's going to take many, many years. It's going to take lots and lots of money and resources, and he's doing so in a place that's landlocked with no water nearby. And this is also, a lot of, a lot of people believe that at no point in history up to this point has rain actually fell upon the earth. So the idea that there would be a flood or that waters would be rising seemed foreign. To Noah at the time and so he gives him this assignment not only does he tell him to build this boat in a very strange and unusual place but he also tells him to round up these animals and and add them to the ark in order that you might save their lives just as your life is to be saved it was quite an assignment that the Lord gave him but verse 722 says this I love this about Noah forgive me 622 it said Noah did this He did all that God commanded him. So even though the assignment was seemingly insane, God did exactly what Noah, I'm sorry, Noah did exactly what God asked him to do. He was a righteous man. He was faithful. And so uh, let me just kind of tell the story really quickly through a few verses. Let me me tell you about some of the elements of the story. You guys have heard this before. But uh, verses 6, 14, and 15 describe the ark, the measurements of the ark. It was made of gopher wood. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It had three decks. It had 1.4 million cubic feet of space inside of it. That's not in the Bible, but that was something I saw when I studied. 95,000 square feet of deck space. This was a gigantic ark. Then in verse 7-2, it tells us what was to come onto the ark with him. Two of every sort of clean unclean animal, male and female, two of every kind, but seven pairs of all clean animals. I'd never noticed that before until I studied this week. We always think of uh, a pair of each animal. Well, he brought in a pair of each unclean animal, but seven pairs of all the clean animals onto the ark. This included birds and animals and creeping things, apparently also included uh, mosquitoes and possums and some of these detestable creatures that we don't love here in Texas. Uh, but unfortunately, it did not include any dinosaurs. No velociraptors made it upon the ark. Um, also, no aquatic animals. Of course, the aquatic animals would survive throughout the flood. They wouldn't need to be inside the ark. Verse 7-7 seven, seven tells us what people were allowed to be on the ark. Verse 7-7 seven, seven describes that there's Noah, who is the righteous man. His wife is there, his three sons, and their wives. So eight total humans were allowed to be on the ark that Lord, the Lord permitted. And then verse 711 tells us about the details of the flood. This is where the water comes into the story. 711 says that the window of the heavens were opened and the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Like I said before, some people believe that this is the first time that it rained upon the earth. So that must have been a, a terribly foreign idea as Noah and all of humanity saw rain coming from the skies. But also it says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth. There's this belief that there were uh, subterranean aquatic sources that basically filled up the earth from below, and so water was coming from above, water was coming from below, and it began to flood the entire earth. Verse seven twelve tells us that the rain fell for forty days and forty nights. A lot of us would, if I if I gave you a quiz, I said how long were they on the boat? You'd say forty days and forty nights. Well, the reality is they were on the ark for much, much longer than that, from before the rain began to, fell, uh, began to fall, and then it, it rained, the flood filled the earth, the flood subsided. These guys were on the boat, some believe, almost 377 days. So it's a much longer time on the ark than the 40 days that we often think of. Can you imagine being stuck on an, an ark with all those animals, with your in-laws, for 377 days? That's a long time to be stuck on that boat. And then we look to seven twenty-one through 23. This is kind of the, the dark part of the story, just to clarify. This is the stuff that we often skip over when we think of this. This is what we skip over when we teach our children. But the scope of this disaster is not left to our imagination. It says there in the Word that all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything living that was on the face of the ground. Terrible, terrible catastrophe. Some estimate that there were tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of humans that inhabited the earth at this time, that had proliferated from the garden. 1,600 years had passed, and so many had repopulated and filled the earth And so this destruction that just took place had unimaginable carnage. It was a great tragedy. Unlike the version that we normally teach our children, the biblical account is especially morbid. It's very morbid. Death and destruction in an immeasurable magnitude. In Genesis 1, as we read through what the Lord did when he created all things, he described it with joy, but we we consider that to be the creation account when God made all things. But when we look through Genesis 6 through 8, you'll notice that in reverse order of the creation account, he begins to destroy all that he made. So this can be considered the decreation account. All that God made in Genesis 1, then we look at Genesis 6 through 8, he begins to destroy them in reverse order of how he made them in Genesis 1. God decreated all that he had made in his grief. Fortunately for Noah, Noah, The ark proved to be a sufficient and safe refuge for him and his family. Those who were safely within the covering of the ark were shielded from the judgment of the Lord. Those outside of the ark were held accountable for their transgressions. God punished all of mankind for their sin while one family, one man, went free. The Lord poured out his judgment upon the earth with a severity that is hard to comprehend the sin of man was extreme, therefore the uh, pain within the Lord was extreme, therefore his judgment upon the earth was extreme. Though heartbreaking, we can identify that what the Lord did there was completely just. Man had been so sinful that he justly was judged by the Lord. The flood shows the extent to which God will go to punish sin to bring, and to bring about righteousness among mankind. We see in this narrative that the Lord takes sin seriously and the consequences for sin are great. By the grace of God, we also see that God is gracious to save even one in Noah and his family. Okay, let's jump ahead a little bit. You got the idea from the flood. You got the picture there. So um, the Lord delivered Noah and his family. The ark came to rest, the water subsided, and then they exited the ark, okay? Let's pick it up there in verse 20, 820. They're just exiting the ark, and this is the first thing that they do. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing, every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first act of Noah upon exiting the ark was an act of sacrificial worship toward the God who saved him. Gratitude, rejoicing, sacrifice to the lord noah took some of every clean animal that's why the lord asked him to bring in seven pairs of clean animals because he knew that a sacrifice would be necessary on the backside. so he took some of these clean animals and he uh he he offered them as a blood sacrifice a burnt offering to the lord and in these offerings to the lord noah sheds the blood of a clean sacrifice in order to make peace with god does that remind you of anything Is that giving you an an idea of something that is to come, a picture that we're familiar with already? Noah demonstrated that the blood of a clean sacrifice, an, an atoning sacrifice, makes way for peace between God and man. That's what Noah discovered that day. And as the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice, he made a covenant with his people. He made an agreement, there it says in 821, to never again curse the ground in the same way, nor will he ever again strike down every living creature. The sacrifice appeased God's anger towards sin and evil. That's what the sacrifice does. And then in 9.1, it says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God proceeds to repeat the creation mandate that he had just offered to Adam and Eve 1,600 years before. We have already seen him articulate this to his people, but he tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So now as you look at the arc of God's timeline, we see in Genesis 1, the creation account. Genesis 6 through 8 is the decreation account. And then in Genesis 9, we observe the recreation account. God's giving him this command to multiply and fill the earth. The Lord had shown him favor, just as he showed Adam and Eve, and he gave this to Noah as a commandment. God was giving the earth and, most importantly, mankind a fresh start. All right, let's jump ahead. 9.12 9.12 through 17. So uh, from one 9-1 to 9.11, it's just, it's just some detail about this agreement that, that he was making with mankind. And then in 9.12, we're going to learn about the sign of this covenant, the sign of this agreement. It says, God said that this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and So with this new covenant, God establishes an agreement between himself and all mankind that he would never punish the earth in the same way. He would never wipe out all of mankind in the same fashion that he had just done. Regardless of man's righteousness or lack thereof, the Lord was not going to return the same consequence that he had already poured out the first time. God offers a symbol or a sign of this new covenant that is set to remind him and can also remind mankind of the agreement that has been made says that he set his bow in the clouds we know that to be a rainbow right this is the sign of the covenant the rainbow it's a beautiful and brilliant creation that the lord made the word he uses to describe this bow that he hangs in the clouds is the same word that describes the piece of warfare the weapon a bow and arrow it's the same word to describe those it's a it's a symbol of ancient warfare which is totally appropriate because we just saw how uh, the, the significance and the severity of God's wrath and anger towards sinful humanity. Well, why wouldn't it be appropriate to use a weapon to show the sign of the new covenant? So he hangs his bow in the clouds, and the Lord places that bow in the sky as a reminder of His covenant. But the bow in this instance is not aimed down toward Earth, but instead, as it hangs in the sky, it points up towards the heavens where God Himself resides. The Lord had just poured out his discipline upon the earth in such a significant way for the consequence of man's sin. But now in the new covenant, the Lord aims his judgment, he aims his battle bow up towards the heaven as he prepares to unleash a consequence that will eventually be borne by himself. That's what we can think about. When we picture that rainbow, we can see it today, we can be reminded of that covenant and what the Lord intends to do here in the coming chapters of the Bible. So mankind had new life. The Lord had blessed Noah and his sons, and they embarked to revitalize the earth, replenish it. God had wiped the earth clean of its corruption and given man a fresh start. Things were looking up at this point in the story. Though, man had been pure, though earth had been purified and a new covenant had been established, the flood was insufficient in purifying the hearts of the men that were inside the ark. Very quickly after this scene, we're going to, we're not going to read it today, but very quickly in this scene after, we see that Noah and his sons fall into uh, a terrible entanglement of sin, which will propel mankind to once again proliferate the earth with sin. So even though the, the flood washed the earth clean and only eight survivors made it through the flood, sin remained in the heart of man. Well, we know how the story proceeds from there. Over the next several thousands of years, the Lord would be long suffering in his patience with the rebellion of mankind. Though man continued to go his own way, God graciously withheld his full judgment from man as he had poured out before. Moses instituted, you guys are familiar with this, he instituted a system of ritualistic sacrifices that would temporarily atone for sin and appease God's anger for sin. That would work temporarily. God would be at peace for a moment. But the problem is man would continue to sin. Man would sin, God would discipline man. Man would repent, man would sacrifice. Peace would return, but then man would sin again. And the cycle would just return. It would go over and over and over again. And this was the uh, rhythm of the relationship between God and mankind throughout the Old Testament. Though God withheld his complete judgment from mankind for all those generations, his seriousness towards sin never waned one time. As sin increased, the need for God's judgment did as well. In his holiness, he was eventually prompted to respond to the problem of sin that had corrupted mankind since the flood. After thousands of years of graciously withholding the arrow of his battle bow, God finally released the arrow of his judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ. In his seriousness towards sin and his mercy toward us, God provided a perfect Atonement in his son Jesus. Throughout the history of mankind, the only time that God surpassed the severe consequence of the flood was with the severe consequence of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that Jesus descended from his heavenly place uh, on a great uh, rescue mission. The mission was to live a perfectly righteous life in order that he might become a perfectly righteous sacrifice. In, in that God would pour out his perfectly complete judgment on him. That was the plan for Jesus. We believe that the holiness of God prompts the Lord to respond to sin with discipline and judgment. And in this instance, he responds by pouring out judgment on his own son. With the flood, the, the judgment that God poured out was severe, but sin persevered. It was insufficient. The flood did not accomplish the full job. The sinful heart of man remained within him and therefore the anger and distress that the Lord experienced from sin would return again and again and again. The occasional sacrifices along the way were were able to appease the Lord for a temporary time, but they were not sufficient to establish eternal peace between God and mankind. While God's judgment in Genesis 7 led to temporary peace and established a new covenant, God's judgment upon Christ had an infinitely greater impact. To borrow language from Tim Keller, you guys have heard him speak of this before. Uh, I didn't steal all these words for him, but this idea has helped me think through uh, the elements of this story. To borrow his language, I would say that Jesus is the true and better version of many of the elements within the flood narrative. Jesus is the true and better Noah, who alone receives the judgment of God in order that all others might be spared. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Noah was the righteous one who, who was spared from judgment while many others were punished. But Jesus was the righteous one who took on the punishment so that the many who trust in him would walk free. Jesus is the true and better ark who shields and shelters all who are found in him from the judgment of God. Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says that in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Noah and his family of eight were delivered from the judgment of God while being within the ark. But in Christ, all who are found in him will be delivered from the wages of sin. All. All. Not just eight, not just a family, but all who trust in Christ will be delivered. He is the true and better ark. Jesus is the true and better flood who completely cleanses and purifies those who believe in him. 1 John 3, 3 says that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The flood in Genesis was insufficient to cleanse and purify the wicked hearts of men. But the Lord Jesus brings perfect and lasting purity for all who trust in him. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice whose blood was shed in order that atonement might be made forever for any who would call upon his name. 1 John 2, 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sacrifice of Noah was sufficient for a time, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient and satisfactory in establishing everlasting peace between God and sinful man for those who call upon Jesus. Jesus is truer and better than any hero, any refuge, any purification, any sacrifice that the world might offer. Therefore, let us be found in him. Jesus Christ is our only hope. He's our only uh, opportunity for rescue. No system, no sacrifice, no ritual will ever have the capacity to save, deliver, redeem, renew, rejuvenate like the person and work of Jesus Christ. Since we know that only, only the righteous are spared from God's judgment, praise the Lord that we might be counted as righteous through the righteousness imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, the Lord sees us as pure and clean and holy and righteous. And because of that imputed righteousness with which we walk in, we no longer fear the pending judgment of God for our sin because that judgment has been fully and completely poured out on Jesus Christ himself. So no judgment remains for those of us who are in Christ. Those of us who are within the better ark of Jesus Christ, we are shielded and shepherded from the judgment of God for our sin. Those are, but those who are outside of the ark, pending judgment awaits them. The flood was a tragic catastrophe that showed the extremity of God's judgment towards sinful humanity, but the flood was only a foretaste of the penalty that would be paid by his precious son, Jesus Christ. Though the sin of man was unbelievably great, it did not exceed the grace and mercy of God. While sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. God showed his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, 8. So my hope is that Jesus might receive the glory and honor and praise and celebration and appreciation that he deserves for taking on the judgment that we deserve. He was the atonement that we might walk free. And as we recall God's seriousness about sin, may that compel us to walk in godliness, and righteousness and purity because we know how serious he is about sin. And let us rejoice that our hope lies in the life and work of our Savior Jesus Christ who suffered the consequence that we deserved in order that we might go free. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are eternally grateful for what you have done for us. We recognize the seriousness with which you take sin. Lord, give us that level of distaste for rebellion. Lord, help us to grow in our hatred of sin. And Lord, help us to recognize the significance of your mercy, your grace, and the provision of Jesus Christ, the perfect atonement, who bore the penalty that we deserved in order that we might go free as we have faith in him. Lord, let that settle on our hearts today. Remind us anew all that you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.